This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool and advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hello, Allison. Bro, how have you been? I've been doing all right. How are you? Uh, I've been okay. That house that we wanted fell through. I'm sorry about that. But then it came through again, and they're like, do you really want to offer the people the original deal fell through? Do you want to make an offer? And at the end of the day, I was just like, no, I just wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So, because you haven't sold your current house yet. Because we haven't sold our current house yeah, yet. Yeah, that's a very tough thing. Because then if that you buy that house and then you're not able to sell your house and you're on the hook for basically two mortgages, that's a tough place to be. Yeah. You made the smart decision. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you. It really was a nice house, though. There are other nice houses in the world, no. from what I understand. No, that was the only that one. That was the only one. <laughs> in today's episode, we're going to explore the ancient mysteries of a secret underground society. The masters of miles, the senseis of sapphire strategy. We're talking about travel hackers. Two elite travel hackers will join us today to share how they finagle free travel all over the world. We're also going to answer your question about swapping out stocks in your IRA and then test your tipping smarts. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. For Answers Answers today, the letter comes from Lindsay. She writes, My husband and I have a regular brokerage account and we each have Roth IRAs. We have realized that the allocation of our stocks and ETFs in the two types of accounts isn't great for tax purposes. We have mostly low-cost ETFs in our Roths and mostly stocks, most of which pay dividends, in our brokerage account. My question is, would it make sense to try to swap some of the holdings? For example, sell some of each in each account and purchase it in the other account. The goal would be to try to hold stocks that pay dividends in tax-sheltered accounts and more tax-friendly ETFs in our regular brokerage accounts. Or should we just try to do a better job of buying the right stock ETF in the right account from here on? Well, Lindsay, I'm glad you're asking about this. What you're asking about is something called asset location. It's basically putting the right types of investments in the right type of accounts with the goal of keeping your tax bill low. And if I remember correctly, Robert Brokamp likes to say asset location is just as important as asset allocation. That's a good thing to say, Alice, and I agree with what you said, because I actually do say that too. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say it's quite as important, but it's pretty important. Morningstar okay. did a study in 2012 that found that smart asset location can add about a half a percent to your return every year. That may not sound like a lot, but if you have a $100,000 portfolio, $100, portfolio, that's $500 less that you give to Uncle Sam, and then you can reinvest that. Or if you're retired, that's another $500 you can spend. So it's still worthwhile. Um, basically, the strategy is you rank your investments by tax efficiency. So at the top, in terms of the most tax inefficient, it would be like if you're a day trader. You're selling your stocks a lot, you're generating a lot, generating a lot of short-term capital gains, maybe some dividends, or you own a mutual fund that has high turnover. So even if you hold on to the mutual fund and you don't sell it, but the manager is doing a lot of buying and selling, you're on the hook for those capital gains. At the other end of the spectrum is a stock that you hold for many years, if not decades, and it never pays a dividend. If you say, for example, own Berkshire Hathaway, and you've owned it for 20 years, but you've never sold it, you've not paid one dime of taxes, because you're only going to pay it when you sell. That's a great type of investment to keep outside of a retirement account. Now, Lindsay thinks that she's made a mistake by having the dividend-paying stocks outside of the Roth IRA. That may or may not be the case because she's comparing it to an ETF. An ETF also pays dividends. If you have an ETF that invests in the S&P 500, it pays about a 2% dividend. So compared to her stock, she actually might be doing the right thing. 
Um, so I would say what you should do is look at the ETFs you own or any other mutual funds. Go to Morningstar, you put in the ticker, and hit the tax tab, and it will give you something called the tax cost ratio. And it will give you an indication of how much return you're losing each year due to taxes outside of retirement account. So, for example, if you owned an S&P 500 index fund outside of a retirement account, you're losing about half a percent a year just due to taxes. But that's actually pretty good. Index funds are a good choice. Compare that to the American Income Fund, which is actually one of the biggest mutual funds out there. It's a mix of stocks and bonds. Those investors lost almost 2.3% a year over the last decade due to taxes. So that's a great fund to have inside a retirement account. So I think she's actually probably doing okay, but she should compare the tax efficiency of her funds. And it's probably not worth it to do a lot of buying and selling to mix things. I would just say be more cognizant of it from now on. two special guests. One, I think we can call a master, a true sensei of travel hacking, and the other, a student, but still an impressive student at that. We have Carl Henley. Carl, you are, uh, what would you say it is you do here? Well, I work in the regulated side of the business with Motley Fool Asset Management. A sister company of the Motley Fool, and, <laughs> and I would say you've been. I guess the, the the term is travel hacking, but you've been doing this for how many years now? Um, far more than I'd care to admit on Mike, actually. So, well, no one can see what you look like, so you look very young. Well, it's oh, very and kind handsome. Of you. Thank very you. handsome. Thank you. Thank you. It's like clean living. Um, I have been doing this now <laughs> for the better part of twenty five years, actually. Okay. We also have here Sarah Rathner, and you. Are also a travel hacker and a, st- a student. Would you say a student of Master Carl? I, I would say I am a student still. I've been doing this for maybe about three or four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So Sarah's being modest. She has eclipsed anything that she has learned from me in the last eighteen months. It's amazing. I now go to her for advice. Uh, so. I don't know. I mean, dare, dare I give the anecdote? Oh, so I once ran into Carl on a flight. And he was in first class and did not pay for his ticket. And I was in coach, and I had. So the student has not surpassed the master at all. And we should emphasize that there is that the teaching thing here is true. Like you've taught this class several times here at the Fool, right? I have. Yeah. I yeah. have. You're and a real expert. He is an expert. And so, what are we talking about when we're talking about travel hacking? Like how? What are we talking generally here about how it ends up that you are sitting in first class? For free. Really, what we're talking about here with this particular portion of travel hacking is using credit card sign up bonuses to get big points or miles from banks who are partnered with either airlines or hotels. And so, for instance, you can sign up for an American Airlines card and get somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 miles and then use those miles for reward travel. And so that's the whole idea of using the credit card industry to help you travel hack your trips. How did you get started as a travel hacker? Like, What was, what was your first step here? Well, I grew up on a small island in the Caribbean that was approximately 12 miles wide and 22 miles long. Which is fantastic. I highly recommend that everyone grow up. You're not complaining, are you? I'm not (laughs) complaining at all. I I highly recommend the strategy for everyone if you can go back in the time. We should also add that Carl was on the national soccer team for this small island. That's that's correct. I didn't know that. That is true. Well, when you have a population of about 35,000, you can get on a lot of different national teams. (laughs) It was a fun experience all the way around. So, again, wonderful experience, but at the end of the day, you're on an island that's 12 miles wide and 22 miles long. So, at a very young age, I had to figure out ways to travel, not only out throughout the Caribbean, but throughout the world on my lawn mowing 
budget. And so, you know, that involved acting as a courier, befriending pilots, um, getting involved with flight attendants and just sort of understanding that world and really just trying to... Uh, is there a dating site no, for this, Carl? No, 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 that's, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But, uh, you know, this was, this was pre-internet. And so I had to figure out any way necessary to, uh, you know, to get on those planes. Again, and I've been not doing it ever since. Now, not now you could just, like, book a flight through Kayak and not date a flight attendant. I, it had its perks, I'm sure. I'm sure. Mm. <laughs> I was, free peanuts. Free peanuts, for example. All we get so from just, Carl is, hmm. Just, just point out that I never used the word date. <laughs> Become friends with. Special hugs? <laughs> Special hugs from flight attendants? No, the, uh, the big picture is just, you know, from a very young age, just determining and, and learning that people were traveling different than some other people. And so I figured out that there were, you know, retail ways to travel, which was at that time calling up a travel agency or, or calling up American Airlines and booking a flight or getting involved in some of these, you know, back-end uh, clubs and areas and uh, learning how to track the system. And so I've been doing that ever since. So some of our listeners, actually, I would say most of our listeners are very savvy people, and they're probably hearing the idea of, I'm opening up these credit cards, and little alarms are probably going off in their head. So the idea of opening up different lines of credit to maximize your points sounds like it can be really dangerous and really dumb. Carl, explain. <laughs> well, it can absolutely be very dangerous and very dumb. So yeah. I, I would agree with that assessment. I, I always joke when people ask me about this. I say like I feel like I'm teaching someone how to base jump or you know raise crocodiles. I mean, I'm sure both are a lot of fun, but they're both very dangerous. So um, the big thing I say on this is be careful. So if you're someone who might be prone to carrying a balance or someone who might be prone to overspending, this is a really bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even for a casual user, sometimes I'll see myself trying to make a particular goal in terms of a credit card spend, and I'll say, you know, huh, I was on the fence on buying that iPad, but, you know, wow, I need the extra, you know, $800 in spend, so I will. So I just bought an $800 item to get a $600 ticket, which makes me an idiot. So right. <laughs> I always tell people, you know, use your head, be very cautious about this. Um, if you're someone who even would be close to carrying a credit card balance, this is not a strategy for you. And, and we can talk about this as well, but there's lots of other strategies. So you can go to a um, site like the flightdeal.com on a daily basis that has just wonderful fares from, from different cities all over the world. You can make sure that you're signing up for um, all the different frequent flyer pi- um, programs as well as the hotel programs to make sure that you're maximizing those days. And um, you know, I know Sarah's got some good tips as well in terms of um, hotels and bookings. So credit cards aren't the only way to go, but they're usually the quickest shortcut to getting those big miles and those big opportunities. So Sarah, you actually, this is so impressive, you basically funded your honeymoon for free by being a smart travel hacker, yeah. right? Yeah. So you got a free honeymoon out of this. How did you mostly do it? Mostly free, yeah. So we, we got free flights and a rental car, and most of our hotels paid for. We spent 12 days in Maui. Um, and it was we probably offset the vacation by about $3,000. And so we were definitely on the hook for, like, you know, we wanted to go horseback riding and snorkeling and stuff, so we paid for those excursions. But it definitely allowed us to have a much more luxurious vacation than we would have been able to if we just paid for it ourselves. And um, I mean, we, we kind of wanted to take advantage. It was a once in a lifetime trip. Like we're, you know, like how often do you get to go right. on a honeymoon to Maui? Right. Like not very often. So, so how did you hack your way to a free honeymoon? So um, travel hacking is something my husband and I enjoy. It's like a hobby of ours. So we we were definitely partners in this. And he just has a great mind, like a steel trap for like remembering, you know, figuring out deals and stuff like that. So um, we kind of strategically applied for certain credit cards and used 
uh, some of our wedding expenses to get point bonuses. And that got us a lot of the way there. And then we also, we're in our early 30s, so all we do in our spare time is go to other people's weddings. <laughs> and so last year, uh, in addition to our own, we went to 11 others. Wow. Many of which were in the town where we live, so we didn't have to book travel for those. We It's just what we were doing that night. But um, a lot of which were out of town. So there was a decent amount of strategic credit card spending and point usage to either earn points or offset the cost of going to those weddings as well because they were all people that we're close with and we wanted to go and we didn't want to have to say no to stuff because of the expense. So um, basically last year was just a giant like accumulation period of points knowing that at the end of last year we would be taking this vacation. So how do you find the best points deals? Like what are you looking for in a credit card, or how do you even find the credit cards that are going to give you the points that, that you need? My tactic is setting a travel goal. So, picking a trip you know you want to go on in the future, and then working backward from there. If you need to fly a certain airline to get there, if you know you're going to need to rent a car, if you know there's a certain hotel you want to stay in, um, because that way you can be pretty specific about what kind of cards you apply for, and also you have an understanding, you can budget out how many points you're going to need. So I like to work pretty far in advance. Um, and that's something that I recommend to everybody. Just having a goal is really helpful. If you're just collecting points and you have nothing in mind for them, uh, you're probably not going to work as hard as you should. It's kind of like financial planning. If you have a goal, you'll make it. If you don't have a goal, you might not save enough for an eventual goal. So I would recommend, you know, if you if you know you want to go to London in a year, and you know that from where you live, you're probably going to fly British Airways, and you uh, there are a certain chain of hotels that you like, and there's one that's located in the part of town where you want to stay, then that gives you a pretty good framework. So Sarah shared her story of travel hacking her way to a Hawaiian vacation. What's a, a story that you're proud of that you were able to, a trip that you were able to make by being very savvy with your points and your strategy? Sure. Well, very early on, I decided that I wanted to experience international first-class travel and not pay a dime for it. And so, about six years ago, when this was sort of at the you know the height of the of the credit card hacking uh, you know travel times, I was able to book round-trip tickets to Asia, um, business class, stay at some of the nicest hotels I'll ever stay at, and really not pay a dime. And it ended up being about three hundred dollars in total total tax fees and things like that. But um, I have a lot of stories like that. I mean, I think over the years I've accumulated and spent, you know, well north of 5 million points and miles, um, probably more at this point. But uh, for me, it's just about the freedom. It's not any one particular trip. It's just the ability to travel on someone else's dime whenever I'd like. So how are you able to do that? Like when people hear that, like how are you, was that, was that a credit card thing? Or was that an accumulation of so many different things that you did and it added up to being able to fly that way? Sure. So, it's, first of all, it's an accumulation, absolutely. But, you know, let's give some very specific examples. So, you can take a, an American Airlines card. And at one point, there was a 100,000-point sign-up bonus for that. And then meet the minimum spend on that. And let's say that that's $3,000 over the course of, you know, three to six months. And we can talk a little bit later about how to meet some of those minimum spends if that seems like a lot to you. But um, the first thing I would do is I would identify where I wanted to go. And Sarah's exactly right. This is, a, this is a hobby not about collecting points, but about traveling. And I always tell people the joy for me is the actual travel, not having the miles in my bank. And so for those specific examples, I'd say, all right, I'm looking for airfare to a specific destination in Asia or Europe. You're identifying the, 
the different airline partnerships that allow that, accumulating one set of points on the airline card and then saying, all right, once I get there, I'm going to need to stay somewhere. So what hotel chains are available there? So in this case, I think it was Marriott's. And you know, Marriott had two 80,000-point credit cards available. I signed up for one, meet the, met the minimum spend, closed that one down, and six months later, signed up for another. And then all of a sudden, I had 160,000 Marriott points. So between those three credit cards, I had round-trip business class airfare to Asia and then enough for four or five nights in a pretty nice hotel as well. So again, warning bells going off that you're opening and closing credit cards, which is supposed to damage your credit report So, and your credit score. So is that true? Like, I'm not asking you to tell me what your credit score is, but have you guys seen any any impact on it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, first of all, to qual, I'll, I'll say this to all of your listeners: to qualify for a lot of these high reward credit cards, you already need to have excellent credit. So, disclaimer time: if you have credit card debt, or if you have a bad credit score, or even a fair credit score, your priority should not be booking travel on points, your priority should be getting out of debt and improving your credit score, which involves paying your credit card on time in full every month um, and not overspending for no reason. So this hobby is not for somebody who has other financial priorities that should take a front seat. This hobby is for somebody with a disposable income and excellent credit who is disciplined about using their cards. so, step one, get disciplined about it. Step two, save money on travel. Um, win, win. <laughs> step three, profit. Dan. Question mark. Step four, profit. I don't know. Um, it can certainly affect your score a little bit, but yeah. the vast majority of what determines your score is your credit history, length, and whether you've paid your bills on time, the amount that you owe, and the mix of your debts. Those are the big overwhelming factors. Um, and knowing Carl and Sarah as I have for years, and we've talked money quite a bit on and off, they are extremely responsible people. So knowing that they do this, I feel very comfortable that they do this as as well and as smartly as possible, and that their credit scores are excellent. For someone who's interested in looking into this a bit, what is do you think a good credit card offer to look at for a beginner? Who wants to start doing more with their points? So I always like recommending people start with a card that lets you accumulate points that could be used for all airlines, all hotel chains, all forms of travel. And also you can use those points to get things like gift cards at retailers and things like that. So if you're looking to save money not on travel but on other things, a card that offers just a general pool of points will get you there. So I uh, always recommend the Chase Sapphire Preferred. I am not you know, like given a kickback by them. This is just yeah. my, None of us, None this of is us my own personal recommendation. Yeah. Um, what I like about uh, Chase Sapphire Preferred is uh, I think their point bonus is something like 40,000 points. If you spend either three or $4,000 in the first three months, they might have changed it since I got the card. Uh, they have great customer service. You don't have to get put on hold. You're sent directly to a human being when you call and when your credit card number has been compromised. That's <laughs> really comforting because that has happened to me three times, Chase. What gives? <laughs> um, but they're very cool about overnighting you a new card and canceling your old one. Um, so you would get this. What I like about this card is um, if, you, if you're working on travel hacking with a spouse or partner with whom you share expenses, um, it's really easy for you to pull points together. So you could both have your own separate lines of credit on Chase 
and then gift each other points for free, which is how which is how we earn the bulk of the points that we used for our honeymoon. So um, I had a Chase Sapphire Preferred, and then we also both had Chase Freedom Cards, which are fee-free cards where you can get $10,000 if you spend like $500 in the first month or two months. And Sarah makes a great point with the cards you recommended because there's there's really two different types of cards. There's cards that offer rewards that are specific to that particular organization. So for instance, when I referenced getting American Airlines points earlier, that's terrific, but then you have to go to American Airlines or call them up, find award travel that's available, make sure that that works with your schedule, and then book that ticket versus something like a Chase Sapphire card where you actually have these sort of you know, um, exchangeable points and currency that you can transfer to airlines and partner hotels, but more often than not, you're able to just book through their travel agency and have free travel. So it's a great starter card for someone who's just getting into the travel hacking world. And what about resources? What's a good uh, blog to read or uh, community? I assume there's a rabid Reddit channel. Wait, is that what they're called? Reddit channel? Group? Subreddits? Subreddits? Whatever. Yeah. Um, Ugh. The Young internet. Ugh. <laughs> well, there's about a thousand of them actually, and this is something yeah. that's really exploded over the last five or six like years. Like blo- a thousand blogs, or easily, know, easily, yeah, it's more. really something. Yeah. And and uh, a quick Google search will reveal quite a few. Um, I'd say for something who's just starting out, um, one of the people that I send people to is um, Chris Gillibo's blog, The Art of Nonconformity. He's a friend of the fool. He's actually spoken here a few times. What I like about Chris is that he keeps it very simple. Um, and he also talks about why you're travel hacking. So he really gets into the you know idea of experiencing travel and what this should be all about rather than just, again, hoarding points and trying to you know fit another trip into your schedule. So Chris Gillibo, The Art of Nonconformity, I get no money for that. Um, the second thing I'll say is uh, check out the Boarding Area Blogger Group. They have about probably 15 or 20 sub-blogs within, ranging from everything from corporate travel to family travel. It's Mommy Points is one of them, uh, and many others. But those are two great resources to start with. Uh, and if you're just curious to see what the dark side looks like, the dark I recommend, side. Yes, I recommend going to Flyer Talk. And, you know, these are the guys. It sounds evil. That is a very evil, dark-sounding name, these Flyer are, Talk. These are wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah, I've, I'm met, sure. I've met a number of them. But, <laughs> sure but it is absolutely incomprehensible to the first-time visitor. And they're, they're speaking in tongues. I mean, everything is code. And uh, you'll see things like, you know, mileage runs. And all the topic headings look like, you know, AA, DCA, RT, you know, HTR. And you're just like, what is this? Mm-hmm. But um, Yeah, because this goes deep. This community goes, of, of travel hacking, it gets deep and complicated. and It gets deep and complicated. And that's why I always like to send people off to, uh, to folks like Chris and to the boarding area first to get a feel for what it's all about. And then, you know, if you're willing to, you know, give up your life and all your other hobbies and you're like me and you want to start travel hacking for real, then you can find yourself at uh, Flyer Talk at three <laughs> in the morning, you know, trying to find mileage runs that give you extra segments so you can earn elite status on American. I will say, you, you don't have to be like that. <laughs> you can enjoy a robust life with a wide variety of hobbies and sleep at 3 a.m. and still do this. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. And so you actually, I actually asked you to be nice and do the math for me with how much money you think you guys have saved on travel just last year alone by doing this. So I looked at um, travel from 2015 and then travel that we have booked for the rest of this year so far. And the number is near seven thousand wow. dollars in what we yeah. would have spent. So right. have we had we gone on all these trips and paid for them and paid for every because sometimes we just use points on the flight but paid for the hotel. So like all the segments we saved money on was about seven thousand yeah. dollars. So there you go, listeners. If you are interested in potentially saving thousands of dollars in travel, 
and getting it from spending that you're already doing, and you think that you are organized and responsible with money, this is something that you can dive very deep into. <laughs> yeah, I just don't don't put it off because um, if you have travel goals and they're expensive and they're beyond your budget and there are other things you want to accomplish in your life, like you can take the cost of travel off your plate and still have these adventures. So just do it. So do you guys mind sticking around for a little game? Sure. Always up for game. All right, here we go. Trade tables in their upright positions. Put your seats and trade tables in there. Summer is around the corner, and that means travel, and that means awkward moments of trying to figure out if you need to give wads of cash to strangers. By which I mean we're talking about tipping. So today we're gonna test your tipping smarts. You ready? Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess. Bro, this is This is how we find out how cheap we all are. That's true. <laughs> right. No, no tip. No tip. Here we go. It's a story. You decide to head to New York City for a fancy schmancy weekend. You take a taxi to the airport. It's a $10 cab ride. What do you tip? I take Uber. <laughs> and you don't tip an Uber. That's true. Actually, Uber and Lyft are now offering the option when you rate your driver to leave them an additional yeah. tip. So, guilt. <laughs> uh, t- two bucks, maybe? Yeah, one or two dollars. Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. That's, I'll give that to you. The correct answer is 20 to 15% of the fare. So, mm. for a $10 cab ride, buck $52 is good. Mm-hmm. A Skycap greets you and takes your bag at the airport. What do you tip? I would never check bags. You know what? He doesn't wear clothes. That's true. I guess for someone like <laughs> I you, actually, you're I, like, I'm I, not going to pay I, that fee. I specifically, if I have to check a bag, I specifically go indoors to do it. <laughs> So I don't have to tip anybody because I already know I have to like pay twenty five dollars. Right. Okay, check so that. you guys are the worst. <laughs> oh my god, a dollar per piece of if luggage. It's, if, it's, if it's me, it's going to be five bucks a bag. It, I've done it because I have like five kids, and if we're all going on a trip, there's all that stuff. So yeah, I would I would say probably between five and ten bucks depends depending on how many bags we have. All right, so the correct answer is two dollars for the first bag, one dollar each additional bag. Oh, what do you know? You're soaring through the sky in first class, of course. Because you used Carl and Sarah's travel hacking tips. And as the flight attendant for a rum and coke with half diet, half regular. Yeesh, you are so high maintenance. What do you tip? I don't. I just say I know Carl. And that gets me everything for free. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've actually never purchased alcohol in a plane. I've either bring your been own. on an international flight where you get wine for free or just you didn't bring drink. your own. You, yeah, you don't bring a flask bring on a plane. You don't know anything about drinking alcohol. I, I really I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they frown on that. Um, actually, I think that's illegal. You're correct. You You're cannot... not allowed to tip a flight attendant. Oh, I, I also think it's illegal to bring alcohol That's on a plane to consume well, on the plane. I don't know. It's, it's illegal to tip. A... Well, it's not illegal, but you're not allowed to tip them. Okay. Really? It's not illegal. Well, but... then I won't, but I also won't ask for such a highfalutin beverage. <laughs> half diet, half regular. Yeah, no. I don't want her spitting in my drink. Later, you arrive at your hotel. The doorman greets you at the door with a smile and a welcome to the Big Apple, you hump. As you wheel your bag past him, what do you tip? Just for opening the door? Hmm? Nothing. Nothing. That's correct. If he doesn't help with the bag, you can just give him a big Midwest style. (laughs) Thank you. Golly gee. Happy to be here. 
You stopped by the concierge desk to see if he was able to get you tickets to the hottest show in town. It's called Love and Lufas at the Villages. Oh, oh no. The concierge sighs heavily. It wasn't easy, but he scored you a great seat for $500. Totally worth it. What do you tip? Well, if it's Love and Lufas, easily between 10 and 20%. Oh, very close. 15 to 20% for hard to get tickets. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, this is, you're learning. I am. You decide to grab dinner at a fancy restaurant in the MoMA called The Modern. What the heck is a Punterelle Canal with Chanterelle foam? Guess you'll find out. The bill comes to $150. What do you tip? 20%. Yeah, 20. 20%. I've known too many waitresses and waiters. I'm always generous with that stuff. Yeah. Trick question! The Modern at the MoMA is a restaurant by Danny Meyer, and you are not allowed to tip. It's already built into the bill. All right, then. You guys well, have maybe heard of this recent trend of uh, restaurants working it in. So that's one of the restaurants. Sorry. Trick no, question. No, you don't have to apologize. I, I like to, that trend. I <laughs> dropping 150. I'm glad about that. Yeah. yeah. So, however, uh, if it was not a restaurant where the tip is figured in, you should do 15 to 20 percent pre-tax, but I always just do it off the top. Me I too. always just do 20 yeah. off the top. Well, yeah. Whatever. Oh, yeah. It's always off. I've always done off I the always top. I always off the top, too. All right. The theater. Love and Lufas at the Villages is a tour de force. When intermission comes, you stop by the bathroom. Oh, no. There's a bathroom attendant. This is so awkward. You finish your business, and she hands you... she Or he. <laughs> <laughs> we have men and women playing the game. He or she hands you a towel. Oh, do you tip for that? Okay, I there's say, like there's, what you there's should always, do there's always, yeah. and I mean, what I've a, actually done. <laughs> and it depends on if I have a dollar on me or not. I would I, I throw a dollar in yeah, there. I'd say a dollar. Yeah. If, if I have change in my pocket and if I have a couple dollars, I'll throw a dollar or two in. After oh, after say, washing my hands. Just after. Say no thanks and wipe your hands on your jeans. Oh. <laughs> or someone else's. Yeah, on the attendant's pants. Yeah, <laughs> just wipe your hands on their pants and walk away. Yeah. So depending on the level of service, fifty cents to three dollars. How, yeah. how much service can you get in there? Well, like if I take a mint, I, I really should leave money. <laughs> just saying. You wake up the next morning and decide to take one of those bus tours of New York. Look, Times Square, other stuff, all for twenty dollars. What do you tip the tour guide? Oh Lord! If he or she is really good, <laughs> yeah, a, a couple of bucks. I mean, per person maybe, but it would have to be exceptional. I think I've done this before, and I've actually tipped five to five to ten dollars. Yeah, yeah. So ten to twenty percent is what you should tip tour guides. What a nice trip! It's time to check out and head home. But wait, shouldn't you tip housekeeping? So this one's just really important to me. I just always feel like that's an area where people often forget to tip. I and always so, forget. Yeah. I always forget and and I, when yeah. I talk to all of my friends, even some of my friends that travel for business quite regularly, I hear the same thing. Oh, I meant to, but I forgot. And so um, I always say start the bidding at $5 a night. And if they yeah. give great service, I'll sometimes leave a 10. But I really hope that uh, everyone listening remembers to uh, tip housekeeping. I yeah. know. I always end up forgetting that. So yeah, correct. The answer is 2 to $5 a day with a note. I have it says it's well, yeah, because you mm-hmm. need to leave a note that says yep. this is for housekeeping. Yeah, oh. I've left a note after uh, Fool Palooza, which is the Fool's annual company retreat, which is known for being a, a rollic- little raucous, a rollicking good time. Um, not that sometimes I, the cops are called. Yeah, sometimes. Um, sometimes a platter of sandwiches is thrown off a balcony, um, and the cops swim, are called. <laughs> swim across a lake at three a.m. Yeah, we have a good time. So I, I don't trash my room or anything because I'm just not that kind of girl. But uh, I do leave them a tip with a note that's like, "Thanks for putting up with us." Because yeah. <laughs> like my room's not that bad, but what about the room down the hall? No idea. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys for joining us and sticking around for the game. Um, we really appreciate it, and we would love to have you back again to talk about even more travel hacking advice. Anytime. Agreed? Love to come back. And quick question, bro. What is the appropriate tip to a podcast host? A hundred percent of what she gets paid. Four muffins. <laughs> there Four. we go. Carl Four brought muffins. muffins. <laughs> <laughs> he tipped Allison with He's muffins. The best. <laughs> A lot of fun, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank yep. you. Last week, we were joking about how people... Um, often bring Chris Hill bottles of bourbon and presents and gifts and they just like just throw things at him because they love him so much and so we're like what would we love for people to throw at us and I jokingly said gold cougarins although not literally uh, but I have a better idea what's that that's idea actual, that's an actual real idea as opposed to a punchline and that real idea is that we would love it if whenever our listeners come and visit Full HQ, they bring a postcard from either their home or from like a favorite place that they've been to. And then we can keep a wall, um, an international wall of postcards for all of our listeners. That's a great idea, Allison. Thanks. <laughs> I think so, too. So maybe you won't be able to visit Molly Fool, but maybe you do want to just send us a postcard from wherever you are, because we know that our listeners are literally all over the world, it's which true. is crazy to me, uh, but we love it. So if you want to send us a postcard, you can. We're at 2000 Duke Street, fourth floor, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. That is, again, The Motley Fool, 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Actually, we're pretty much the whole building. You don't necessarily have to put 44. <laughs> uh, you can take care of Motley Fool Answers or care of the bro. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> have fun with it. All right, that'll do it for today's show. It is edited stealthily by Rick Engdahl. And for oh, and our email is answers at fool.com. If you want to drop us a line, ask us a question. We do have a mailbag episode coming up here in the next couple of weeks. So for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.